This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The words of 1 Peter 5.8. And they apply to us today, not just in biblical times. As Christians, we have a formidable enemy in Satan. He is the tempter. He is the father of lies. He is the deceiver. What more should we know about the devil, though, pertaining to his weaknesses and his strategies against us? And what should we understand about his defeat. We're going to be talking about it today with Dr. Joel Beakey. Dr. Beakey is president and professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He also serves as a pastor of the Heritage Netherlands Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, we're going to be talking about his book, Fighting Satan. Dr. Beakey, so nice to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing well, Janet, and thank you for having me on. That's great. Wonderful to talk to you. Now, this is a very serious subject, and you talk about the fact that we are in what Bunyan called a holy war. Now, what do you think that really entails when we use the term holy war? Well, it's holy because we're battling against um, the powers of evil uh, in a spiritual way, seeking to live for, for God's kingdom and for our Savior, and so we're battling against um, the world and its worldliness and our own natural old nature, and Satan is there stoking the fires in both, seeking to uh, to get us to stumble. So the old Puritans used to speak of the triple-headed enemy, hmm. which we fight in the holy war, the, you know, the world, the, the self, and, and, and Satan. Right, exactly. And yet we live in a world today that is a little bit amused at the idea that there is a devil. He's often portrayed in the red suit with the tail and all the rest and the pitchfork. And even for Christians, uh, they're they're scared almost to talk about Satan because they don't want to become extreme and see demons behind every bush. But what do you think is a, a biblical position on the devil and what we do need to know about him? Well, the basic biblical position is that the devil is is fallen from heaven. He was a, a spotless angel, and in some way or another, probably through pride, um, and that's a real mystery of how pride could be in heaven, but he was cast out because he wanted to usurp God's throne. And so he comes to earth, and he tries to get Adam and Eve to fall in the very way that he fell, and he seems to be successful in that, because they do fall out of pride and unbelief. And and now, the Christian biblical view is that Satan is a formidable evil, um, a power that's stronger than we are all by ourselves, but much less strong than, of course, and that's the good news, than Jesus Christ, because after all, Satan's a fallen angel, and Jesus is an unfallen Lord of glory who has all power in heaven and earth. So Christ has the upper hand, and we need to balance that out in our own thinking, saying to ourselves, well, Satan's not almighty, Christ is almighty, but we shouldn't minimize Satan either, or the devils, and say, 
well, because Christ is Almighty, they're not a force to be reckoned with. Right. The, the devil and his, and his minions are, are, are mighty. They're just, thank God, not almighty. Oh, quite. Very, very much so. And now it's interesting when we mention that Satan is a fallen angel, as Scripture says, many people will say, well, now he took angels with him. A third of the angels fell with Satan. What is their role in the earth today? Are they roaming around in the sense of beings or how does it, you know, people have a little, you know, mischaracterization at times or sometimes a misunderstanding of where Satan is and how he works in our world today. Correct. Yes. Good question. Well, I think we need to think of it this way. We, we tend to be very visually oriented in our society, so we try to picture the spirit world in all of its details. Um, the devil, when we say the devil, we mean Satan, the prince of devils. But when we say devils, we mean all the hosts that follow him. So they are, they are spirits just like the angels are in heaven, only they're evil spirits. And so what they try to do is they try even though they know they ultimately won't be successful, they try to destroy the work of God, and uh, they know they can't reach Christ. He's exalted. He's victorious. So they try to reach his uh, the crown of his his work, which is his people. And so that yeah, first and foremost uh, in the in the crosshairs of Satan and his minions would be would be the children of God. He'll do anything to destroy the children of God, uh, and so he uses every effort, as, as John Calvin says, he overturns every stone to our disturbance mm. to try to get us to deny the Lord who bought us. Um, and then, of course, he, he tries to keep his own captives, that is, unsaved people, keep them in his own camp without having them go AWOL and, and go into the camp of Jesus through, through the regenerating and saving work of the Holy Spirit and through faith and repentance. Mm. So, he would very much oppose uh, any any effort to for people to repent and believe the gospel. Absolutely. You have described Satan in the book like a condemned criminal on death row. So Satan has been defeated by Christ, as we know, but it is not a final defeat because we are still living here. How should we reconcile those two truths that Christ has defeated Satan at Calvary uh, and then risen again, but yet we still have to contend with him until Christ returns and everything is uh, finished in the final analysis. Yes, the whole the whole New Testament age dynamic in which we're living is always uh, in the New Testament presented as the now not yet dynamic. Now we're still in Romans seven territory where we grapple with the evil that is within us that we we wish we could put to death completely, and we're not yet what we're going to be one day when we're perfected um, in, in in glory. Uh, one one old divine put it this way, he said, Satan is missing from the two first chapters of the Bible, and he's missing from the last two chapters of the Bible. Mm. Uh, but until the Day of Judgment, uh, he's, he's, he's a present force to, yeah. to, to be reckoned with. And so we, we live with that tension. We're fighting Satan. He is a defeated foe. That's our, that's our victory, and that's our glory. But it doesn't mean he won't seek to do us damage. So if you go back to Genesis 3.15, and you look at that wonderful first gospel promise that the head will be bruised by uh, Jesus, that is the head of Satan, and Jesus will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, 
Well, he's going on and doing that still today. He's always trying to bruise us, get us to fall, get us into trouble, um, bring evil thoughts into our lives somehow. He's always trying to get us to weaken our witness for Christ. And so it's a battle. But thanks be to God, the victory is ours in Christ. And Romans 16 says, The Lord shall bruise Satan under your head shortly. So the day's coming when Satan will be cast into hell, will be no more, and every true believer will be with Christ where all evil is walled out and all good is walled in. Amen. Now, it's interesting because when you talk about Satan wanting to come after Christ's church because he can't do anything to Christ, how is it that he continues to, as some people say, fight a battle that he can't win? I mean, if we belong to Christ and we have been saved and we are being sanctified and we will one day be glorified and God has guaranteed that in Christ and the, use the Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. How, why does Satan bother? I guess that's the, the bottom line question for a lot of people. Why would Satan bother to try to attack the church when that he can't finally win? Yeah. Have you ever had someone who's so much of an enemy against you that that person knows they can't topple you completely from your position or your leadership, but he just hates you so much he's out to get you no matter what? Oh, yes. Damage (laughs) you possibly could. Yep. Okay. So that's the kind of thing that Satan is into. He knows he can't get the victory, but he he hates Christ. You have to understand, Satan is driven by hate, just as God is driven by love. So he hates God so much. And he wants to do anything he can to possibly damage that cause, even if he knows he's going away to ultimate defeat. Right. Well, and that's that's really important to consider, especially when we're looking at passages like Ephesians chapter six. One of the things you talk about, Dr. Beakey, is how we fight this war against Satan, both defensively and offensively. We're going to come back to that, talking about fighting Satan with Dr. Joel Beakey. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is a story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw my blessings like that. 
Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you please join Preborn in providing love and support for young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. Just call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thanks a lot for being with us. And we are discussing the devil Fighting Satan, the name of the book from Dr. Joel Beakey, who is joining me right now. And when we have been discussing this issue of fighting Satan and understanding Satan and his strategies, before we talk a little bit about Ephesians 6, Dr. Beakey, what are Satan's strategies? He's described in a lot of ways in the word of God as a tempter and a deceiver and a liar and a lion and all these other um, you know, names that scripture gives to him. But what would you say are some of his strategies against us that we ought to know about? Yes, well, Satan can come as, as, a, as a force for promoting sin, for promoting um, unrighteousness, uh, lasciviousness, lust of the flesh. So then he attacks us in a very direct way, um, tries to make sin attractive, and that type of thing. But he also comes, the Bible says, in other places as an angel of light. Right. And in these ways, he can come to try to deceive us, to try to make us think that we're children of God when we really aren't yet. Um, or he can try to come as an angel of light to, to minimize sin in our lives, say, that's not so bad, you're saved, you're a Christian. So Satan, the Bible pictures it this way, that he doesn't mind if you're a nominal so-called nominal Christian in the church, that you've got some head knowledge about Christianity, as long as you don't live it. What the Satan would oppose with my domain is a vital living reality in, in Christianity. Right, exactly. Fine. Keep it to yourself. Just don't live it out. Don't act like a Christian. Don't behave the way Christ commands you to behave, because that's when his kingdom is truly threatened. And, and especially when we are engaged in preaching the gospel to sinners whom God may take away from Satan's kingdom. That that is also a, a threat to him. Exactly. That's exactly right. Now, let's go to Ephesians 6, because we have all of the weapons of war that, that are talked about in that particular passage, the, the belt of truth and the feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, and so forth. When you look at those particular aspects of the armor of God, it's interesting how many of them are defensive. And what is the parallel, would you say, between the defensive posture of the Christian in Ephesians 6 and how that helps us interact in this battle? Yeah, well, the whole New Testament is structured around these these two principles, and, and Ephesians 6 is just a graphic demonstration of that, where we've got seven or eight pieces of weaponry, and the whole goal here is to be covered from head to foot in this battle and to uh, have certain pieces of armor, like uh, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, and use them defensively, and, of course, your shod feet, but then also use the sword of the Word of God so you can go on in attacking offense, and, of course, through prayer, praying in the Spirit, watching with perseverance, we actually um, are looking out for Satan, standing up for Jesus, going on the offensive. And really, if you boil it down into a, a nutshell, 
what we're talking about here is the two dimensions of the Christian life. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 puts it this way, lay aside sin and all that easily besets you as you run the Christian race, and then that's a negative, put aside sin, be, 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 be active but be defensive there, but then offensively go out and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, etc. In other words, you live always in this dilemma, this tension where you're saying no to sin and you're saying yes to Christ. And in that battle, you're being both defensive and offensive. It's the battle of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And so there's all these parallelisms in the New Testament about uh, this, this double aspect to the Christian life. Okay, so you've mentioned some of these aspects of the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6, and the one that really stands out, and they all stand out, but the belt of truth, this is a foundational thing. What is the connection between having that belt of truth on? For many Christians, they'll read that and say, what does that even mean? I'm a Christian and I believe the truth, but what are you talking about, Lord, when you say I need to put on the belt of truth? Yeah, well, Christians, of course, are people who believe that, as Jesus said in John 17, thy word is truth. So God has deposited his truth in the Holy Scriptures. And thanks be to God for that, otherwise we wouldn't know what is truth and what is absolute truth, what is relative, what is indifferent. So the Bible makes plain what truth is, and so as a Christian, we we gird ourselves on with, with, with the Bible, really. The Bible is our objective standard, our final authority for, for doctrine and life. And then we gird up the loins of our mind and the loins of our heart, believing this truth in our mind, believing it in our heart, in our inmost being. And uh, so it's like putting on the belt. So it's not something you, 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 you put on just when you wake up at 7 a.m. and you take it off at 11 p.m. <laughs> you, you, it's 24-7. The Christians will be constantly wearing this belt of truth. So everything I do, everything I say, everything I even think, I am to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience to the Word of, of God. And that, that has tremendous ramifications. It means that all times, I as a Christian, despite my feelings, am to be striving to consciously, intentionally, tangibly live on this trajectory of truth, always be asking, what does the Word say? What does God want me to do now? He wants me to do what His Word says. What does the Word say in this situation? Right. And and this calls to mind Matthew chapter four, where Jesus is tested in the wilderness and the way he fights the devil in the wilderness is with the word of God, but not just the word of God. He he the devil is also using the word of God. And that's that's something else we face. We can get lies thrown at us through Bible verses by because they may be taken out of context or they may be misapplied in a situation. What do you draw from Matthew 4 in how the Lord fought Satan using the sword of the Spirit? Yeah, I think the first principle there is that we always go back to the Word as we fight Satan. That's our our strongest defensive slash offensive weapon. That's actually both, the the sword of the Spirit. Uh, Bunyan has this wonderful uh, picture in in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is under the sword of the devil. The devil's about ready to give him one final blow, and Christian's laying in this valley of the shadow of death, and suddenly he reaches out with his fingers and he grabs hold of the sword of the Word of God, and with one blow he thrusts Satan back, and he must speed away. And uh, it's really graphic, but what Bunyan's saying is, is really Matthew 4, when Jesus used the Word that threw, the, because the Word has so much power, 
that threw Satan back on his heels. And so Jesus is saying, this is how you are to handle his temptations. Go back to the Word, say, it is written, it is written, it is written. But through daily Bible study, you know, Jesus said, if you continue in my Word, then are you my disciples. So lifelong, we stay students of the Word, and as we do so, we more and more learn how to apply the Word, we more and more learn the dangers of taking out of context, and we more and more gain the skills of using the Word in different life situations so that we really know what it says and how to apply it in a, in a particular situation. That's a great point. You can't use the Word in an appropriate way if you don't know the Word. It's sort of <laughs> a very basic thing that, that all Christians have to know the Bible. Now, this, right. is, this is interesting, too, because you will see sometimes on, well, let's just say different TV shows from time to time that you might pass by on your TV, where fighting Satan is a matter of you know, some televangelist saying, I, you know, I defy you and get out and I fight you and I curse you. And I, I mean, when you think about that sort of a strategy, somebody might be well-meaning, but that is really not a biblical picture of how to fight the devil just by casting him out and telling him he's through. (laughs) I mean, it is Christ who defeated Satan, not, not us. Right. That's right. That's right. And we're, we're not Christ to throw, throw the devils out of people and all kinds of stuff like that. That, that's his, that was his prerogative because he's almighty. The, the Puritans put it this way. I think it's a graphic but a helpful picture. They said the Christian life is like, like walking down a narrow walk, uh, picture a narrow sidewalk, and on, the, on both sides of the sidewalk are hedges. And behind the hedges is um, thousands and thousands of devils along the way. And they've got their bows strung, and they're ready to, they're ready to uh, shoot you all along the way. If you dally and you don't make progress, and you don't run the race set before you, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're going to strike you. Mm-hmm. But you run the race, you keep running, and you're, you're girded in this armor from head to foot, from, from feet shod to, to, to the helmet of salvation on top of your head. So you're, you're covered, you're protected, but you're running the race. And so, as Thomas Watson said, is sweating work all the way to heaven. This is a battle. You're, you're, you're in a holy war. Yep. And so it's not just a matter of saying, oh, devil, be gone. And, you know, and, no, you're, you're, you're fighting hand-to-hand combat, as it were, as you're, as you're running the race. Absolutely. And, and something you say in the book is we can only defeat Satan if we watch and pray, as the Lord told us to do. We get drowsy if we're not paying attention, if we're falling asleep like the disciples. Uh, we're in peril, aren't we? That, that's right, and, and part of the reason is because we don't we don't know we don't realize most of the time in our very worldly worldly culture um, the the dreadfulness of sin the heinousness of sin the anti godness of sin yes. and because we don't understand uh, the enormity of sin we don't understand the enormity of God's grace and so we end up just um, kind of either backsliding or walking lazily along. In, in the Christian race, thinking we're, we're, we're fine, which, of course, then Satan will leave us alone because we're no threat to, to, hit, to him and to his kingdom because we're doing nothing of any value in the kingdom of God. That's it. Now, you had mentioned uh, the fact that we need to resist Satan with the word and also the promises of God. But the other aspect of that that you talk about is fleeing to our intercessor, Jesus Christ. What, what the line that, you know, the sheep are no more safe than they are than when they are close by their shepherd. This is It's mm. like a two-pronged strategy, really, isn't it? Mm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and the closer you are, 
closer to our price, you're always, always a safer. Hence the need for, for constant prayer uh, and constantly in the Word, because the prayer in the Word is like two-way conversation in a relationship to Christ. Absolutely right. Dr. Joel Beakey, the name of the book, Fighting Satan, Knowing His Weaknesses, Strategies, and Defeat. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today. It was the ancient philosopher Plato who believed that the good, the true, and the beautiful are celestial and yet inseparable ideas. And he argued in favor of the objectivity of such values. Now, Christians also have embraced these ideals, knowing that they are rooted in the very nature of God. But we're living in a very unobjective age at the moment, a time in which relativism guides much of man's thinking about what it even means to be human. And this is unfortunately carried over into education. How can you educate a new generation? properly if it is not interacting with these concepts of the good, the true, and the beautiful. So joining me now is Dr. Steve Turley. He teaches theology, Greek, and rhetoric at Tall Oaks Classical School in Newcastle, Delaware, and he is professor of fine arts at Eastern University. Today we're going to be talking about his book. It is called Awakening Wonder, A Classical Guide to Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. Dr. Turley, it's great to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Janet, for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, this is interesting. This will, uh, I think, stretch people's minds a little bit, just remembering Plato's involvement with this particular concept. But take us back a little bit to the time of Plato and what he believed about the true, the good, and the beautiful. Yeah, it is a different world from the world we're living in uh, today. I I loved your introduction. Um, For Plato, uh, the world could be summarized in a a wonderful phrase that scholars use called cosmic piety. It's this idea that the world is filled with divine meaning and purpose. And what that means is that every person born into the world is born into a world of divine obligation. We're obliged to conform our lives into a harmonious relationship with that divine meaning and purpose. And um, we, we understand that meaning and purpose through primarily three ways, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Truth communicates divine meaning and purpose to my intellectual capacities. Uh, goodness communicates divine meaning and purpose to my moral capacities. And beauty communicates divine meaning and purpose to my aesthetic and my emotional capacities. And for Plato, he, he saw these objective values as absolutely necessary to bring those three aspects of our souls into a balance with one another. We, we all know people who are all intellect, uh, but no, uh, no feeling, no emotion, the most Mr. Spocks of the world. Right. We all know people who are all emotion and no thinking. I won't mention any names <laughs> there, but... <laughs> For Plato, he wanted to see how do we get the intellect and the emotional side of the human person in balance. And you do so by encountering this perfectly balanced cosmic values of truth, goodness, and beauty. And you know that balance has occurred in the soul 
by their fruit, by their ethical life, uh, by their fruit you shall know them. So virtue became central to the educational project of Plato. And so truth, goodness, and beauty are cosmic values that communicate divine meaning to the intellectual, moral, and aesthetic capacities of the human soul, which brings a balance in the soul, which in turn harmonizes the human person with that divine meaning and purpose of the cosmos, which was considered the prerequisite to human flourishing. Wow. Now, when you consider what Plato's ideals were all about and how he would implement those, it strikes me and it strikes you as well in your book that we are living in very different times than Plato's times. What would you say the big difference was between the context in which he was living and the context in which we are living now? Yeah, the huge difference is the change in cosmology. Uh, for, For Plato... We lived in a divine world, um, but we're, li- we're living in a world that's uh, been cut off from that divine meaning and purpose. Today, we're living in a world solely defined in terms of biological, chemical, physical causal laws. Right. And as a result, the divine meaning and purpose that was once thought of as embedded in the world has been relocated purely to subjective processes, mere private belief, personal preference. And so now truth is whatever I want it to be. Uh, Goodness is situational. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, And this is because largely we're living in a time where we believe science uh, reveals to us reality, and faith is something that is merely personal and private. Yes, for sure. So now when you go from Plato to the time of the early Christians, how did Christians understand historically these concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty? Because certainly these would be attributes rooted in the divine nature of God. That's right. And, and that's exactly how they catch them up into the Christian gospel, but then they allow the gospel to do its transforming work and radically alter these concepts, too. So Christians certainly affirm that all people are born into a world of divine obligation, but they introduce something wholly new by transcribing this cosmic piety away from the gods and the planets and the celestial spheres, you know, the worship of creation that Paul talks about in Romans 1. And instead, they impute it solely onto Christ, who's the Logos the new creation, the one in whom all things hold together, the one through whom God is revealed as the infinite fountain of Trinitarian love and delight. Absolutely. And and there's this also this radical recalibration of creation in the human person. So for Plato, the material world and the physical body were in fact impediments to experiencing the true, the good, and the beautiful. But for Christians, the human soul was it was firmly fixed within the goodness of creation, right. and it was inextricably linked to the physical body. And instead of getting rid of the physical cosmos, which is what Plato wanted to do, Christians affirm that Christ restored paradise. He brought paradise back into our midst. And so you see the cross as the tree of life restored and the rivers of Eden are seen uh, as re- recovered in the waters of baptism. Uh, the grain and fruit of the third day of creation are transformed into the bread and wine identified mm. with the body and blood of Christ so that creation and incarnation come together mm. to restore a relationship with God and with one another. 
and hence perpetuate the life of the world in a new creation. Wow. So, yeah, so Christians, they really draw in all of this truth, goodness, and beauty, but they radically alter it by having it center around Christ. So kind of shaking off the Gnostic sensibility. Oh, you bet. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It, it, we're, we're firmly physical creatures. We belong in creation. Creation is good, and it is holistic. Behold, I make all things new. How did we lose this, would you say, especially in education? Because historically, when you go back, uh, in particular strains of education especially, there was this idea that that was the purpose of education, to pursue the true, the beautiful, and the good. Uh, What happened? What exactly happened to us? There's a number of things that that go on. It, It takes a few hundred years to work itself out. But bottom line, I think um, knowledge changed. Our conception of knowledge changed. I believe it's a contradictory change, but nevertheless it happened. And that's the idea that the only way I can really know is through some kind of scientific, empirical verification. Everything else is mere private opinion Hmm. and personal preference. And you combine that with the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of uh, secular statism that's regulating that industrial revolution, and then uh, reinstituting a new education that's more interested in creating workers and skills than it is wisdom and virtue, Um, you're going to have a complete different paradigm shift. I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis summed it up beautifully when he said, the classical imagination had an education that answered the question, how do I conform my soul to the divine meaning and purpose around me? And the answer was through wisdom and virtue. Modern education answers a very different question. It answers the question, how do I conform this meaningless, purposeless nature to my own desires and ambitions? And the answer through tapping into those institutions that operate by the mechanisms of coercion, namely science, technology, and the state. Think of the STEM subjects, for right, example. Right, absolutely. And, and so all the, all the aspirations that we, we once longed for, the true, the good, and the beautiful, they in effect disappear in this new educational project because no one's asking that question. How do we conform our souls to that divine meaning and purpose of the created order around uh, us? Very important. We're going to come back to the discussion. Dr. Steve Turley, Awakening Wonder. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural-born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of 
of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Steve Turley is my guest. We're discussing his book. It's called Awakening Wonder, A Classical Guide to Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. And boy, have times changed. If you go back to the ancient philosopher Plato, as we've been discussing, you saw this concept of truth, goodness, and beauty being such an important transcendent trio of values that should be pursued. And Christians also picked up on this theme to a greater degree, rooted in the incarnation of Christ and the Trinity. But today, all bets are off, and my guest has pointed out very well, but Dr. Turley, I think that our conception of knowledge really has changed. And what would you say have been the, really the after effects of negating this idea that, that wisdom and virtue is an important part of education? Well, it's, um, it's devastating and it's holistic. It's uh, systemic in terms of our society because we have bought into the idea that knowledge needs to be sequestered from what the classical imagination would have, would have brought it together with. So we make these dichotomies of fact versus faith, knowledge versus belief, science versus religion. Right. And so the result now is that you can believe whatever you want when it comes to God and gender and uh, increasingly race, and uh, you name it. You can believe whatever you want. You can believe God is Jesus Christ. You can believe God is a pickle. It doesn't matter. Right. But, you, but you walk into a science or math classroom, and you're going to be confronted with absolute and unquestionable reality. <laughs> That's the necessary prerequisite for cultivating skills that can then be used to... Um, to increase economic growth, and we need economic growth in this sense in order to more effectively conform reality to our own desires and ambitions. C.S. Lewis said it, said it very well. Uh, classical education sought to cultivate wisdom and virtue. Modern education seeks to cultivate workers and skills. Mm. And Lewis reminds us in the classical world 
that virtue was for the free man, skills was for the slave. Oh, boy, that is uh, very telling, especially applied in our own day. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned C.S. Lewis. One of his famous works is The Abolition of Man. And what would you see as the connection between this rise of relativism and the loss of what it means to be human? Because that's something a lot of Christians especially have remarked upon, the fact that man is losing his unique identity in all of this, the way things have changed. That's right. It's... um Again, Lewis is very profound. This is a fantastic resource for your listeners, The Abolition of Man. Uh, Peter Kraft calls it probably the best book written in the 20th century on the modern age, yeah, which great. is saying something from Peter Kraft. <laughs> yes. um, and in under 80 pages, Lewis, Lewis does this fantastic job. His, his major concern is that this modern turn that we've taken away from the transcendent values of truth, goodness, and beauty, inevitably reduced the human person to mere nature. And he was very concerned about this, because if the modern project is about uh, conforming nature to our own desires and ambitions, and if we then realize that humans are basically nature... (laughs) <laughs> then we can start manipulating humans. Yeah, sure. And if those Planned Parenthood videos don't prove that, I right. don't know what could possibly. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, now, when you look at the classical model, for example, which has been very much embraced by Christians in the last, I don't know, couple of decades for sure, there is this resurgence of interest in doing a better job of educating and incorporating these values of truth, goodness, and beauty that rooted in the Trinity, rooted in the incarnation of Christ. What does that look like, though, in the classroom? What is the difference between the way the secularist would instruct a child in the classroom and the way a classical educator would do it? Oh, it's great. Yeah, again, for the uh, classical Christian educator, we're we're starting from the premise um, that there is a fall. (laughs) Yeah, what a concept. (laughs) Right, yeah, there's been a fall. And, and the soul has been disordered, and not just the soul, either the body, the senses as well, the whole human person has been cast out of paradise. And so the, the human, in order to be truly human, we have to be, in a way, rightly put back together. And so through the grace of God that comes to us through church and sacraments, His Word, we then, as an extension of that, um, begin cultivating the process of virtue formation that was lost in the garden. And central virtue, of course, is trusting in all the promises and provisions of God, thereby glorifying Him as Creator and Redeemer, which frees us up to consider the needs of others as more important than our own, loving God, loving neighbor, fulfilling the law. So we'll focus on uh, cultivating a moral imagination. the imagination here is seen as the integrative center for that, uh, that logical, that intellectual, moral, and aesthetic sensibilities that truth, goodness, and beauty awaken. And we'll focus on uh, a tradition that's called the redemption of the senses, which, is, uh, which sees the, the senses as having fallen along with the soul, and so they need to be retrained, reoriented away from the carnal and the sensual and toward the eternally true good and the beautiful. And so the purpose then of literature, art, architecture, music, and poetry is about sanctifying the senses and preparing the body for its future resurrection when Christ returns. Very different than modern education. Modern yes. education yes. is going to teach you, it's going to perpetuate the idea that science and math are facts, 
everything else is faith. Science and math are knowledge. Everything else is belief. Hmm. Science gives us a true understanding of the world. Religion is a personal, private thing that does not belong in the public square. That's what modern education perpetuates. Today. Oh, it does. And and what is the end result of all of this? You get metal detectors in schools, Absolutely. and you have character for you know character uh, formation classes alongside Planned Parenthood sex ed. You got I mean, it. But but you you end up not teaching children how to think in the final analysis and not teaching children really in in the final analysis how to have good moral character because that really in the it really communicates to the next generation that you are something more than just a blob of cells which is seems to come up against uh the secularist mentality these days absolutely you got it. i love uh, i love paul's call in romans 12 1 and 2 off your bodies as living sacrifices. There, there's, that, there's those sanctified senses, as it were. Okay. And don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be renewed, right, by the transfiguration of the mind. The yes. body and the soul together are, are caught up in this, this redeeming, uh, glorious grace of Christ. And if, if, it's, if it's not being drawn up into that grace, it's going to go into a counterfeit gospel. Mm-hmm. And our counterfeit gospel today is the modern secular age. Oh, for sure. That's well said. Now, one of the things that you talk about is getting students to really awaken wonder. This is playing off your title. In this field of aesthetics, what are you talking about? You had talked about that a little bit, referring back to Plato, but what is your objective here when you're trying to get students to think about think about life aesthetically? Yeah, we're trying to get them, the, the whole idea of aesthetics is the idea, you know, the contemplation of art and beauty. And even just that term, contemplation is a beautiful term. It comes from the Latin contemplare, meaning thinking thoughts associated with the temple, contemplare. Hmm. It's a very sacred, consecrated thoughts. And what you're doing is you're, you're teaching students to begin to look at the totality of the created order as just that, a divine arena of God's glory. That's one of the hardest things today for the modern mind to see the world in many ways like a metaphor. And so what we'll do is we'll train them to read stories as pointing to a wider story. So um, we'll get them to, for example, read uh, Sleeping Beauty. And what's Sleeping Beauty? Well, it's about a prince who comes, slays a dragon, rescues his bride, and raises her to life. Well, wait a minute now. We've read that before, haven't we? <laughs> or, or Pinocchio is a story of transfiguration. Yeah. Uh, the Little Mermaid is, is, is about the quest for eternal life. They learn to see sports, uh, as Paul saw it in 1 Corinthians 9, as a way of developing self-control and self-mastery and virtue. They look at science as a way of studying not just creation, but even uh, through chemistry and biology, the very body that Christ incarnated and is preparing for its total transfiguration when he returns. So it's beginning to look at the totality of life around them as divine images of God's glory. Wow. And what a difference that makes in the final analysis, because that is the truth. And this is a great book. It's called Awakening Wonder, A Classical Guide to Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. Dr. Steve Turley joining us today. And it was wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Dr. Turley. Thank you, Janet, so much. Oh, thank you again for being with us. We appreciate your listening today. Hope you can join us next time. Our website is JanetMefford.com. Thanks a lot for listening. God bless.